The 360 on Energy and Carbon, hosted by 360 Energy. Before we get into today's episode, the 360 Energy team would like to thank you for making this yet another exciting year of the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast. In our third year of podcasting, we reached over 20 countries, produced 40 plus episodes of new content, featured over 20 expert guests on our show, pulled in thousands of listens, and entertained hundreds of listeners to whom we are so grateful. We extensively explored the 360 part of our podcast name this year by featuring energy and carbon topics from food to ocean health, data to climate modeling, technology to markets, government to utility, ESG to corporate strategy, and literacy to industry examples. David, John, Alana, and myself sincerely thank you all for joining our energy and carbon journey. We look forward to sharing many more episodes with you in 2024. Welcome back, John. It's good to be back. We're missing your co-host today. Dave, unfortunately, is sick. And I know he really looks forward to this episode, but I'm sure he's listening to us right now. So hi, Dave. Yeah, hi. It'd be interesting. See if we could see if we can manage without. I think we can, Sandra. I think we can. <laughs> I think we can too. And now this is our third annual COP episode. So our first year of podcasting was 2021, I believe, which is when we did COP26. And then last year we did COP27. And this year we are now doing COP28. So this may be a familiar episode for some of our listeners, but for those it isn't. What is COP28? COP28, well, it's the COP bit is the Conference of Parties. And it's a, it's a UN-sponsored group that's been going for 28 plus years, trying to get global ag- agreement and action on climate change. I think that's put it, put it simply. But as with all these things, we end up talking of COP28 and we forget that it's Conference of the Parties. And the idea is, is to bring as many countries of the world together in order to get a consensus of action. But I, I'm, I'm slightly jaded about COPs because I think that they I think they're important, but I think we perhaps put a bit more faith in what they are than what they actually agreed. And I think, you know, as I was scrolling through some news articles, watching some videos before this episode, I do think many people share that sentiment, especially if you have not attended a COP. I think actually I do like the perspective of people outside because we're the ones that are like, okay, so what's coming out of this? You know, what's, what's the newest headline? What did we agree on? What's, what are the actual outcomes? We're looking for actual deliverables. Whereas again, anytime you're attending a conference, I'm sure it's amazing. There's this era to it. There's this, you know, everyone's excited. People are talking, you know, you get to meet so many new people. I'm sure it feels valuable. But for everyone at home, I think we don't see as much of the value, unfortunately. You, you've you've encapsulated that perfectly. I I, know, I have mm-hmm. spoken since COP to two people who've been there. Um, they were in the sort of um, observers and par- uh, other participants. They weren't representing countries, and okay. they they found it vibrant exciting they loved the way that people were working together and things were, were, were going along together there are 
and a number of people have expressed expressed it there are there is the big question of why or how did cop end up being in dubai in, in the mm. uae you know why a petro state the counter view is that we need to get petro states on board so why not a petro state right and we've got the thing and i i think this is incredible you may have picked up in the news that we we've got some words around fossil fuels and mm -hmm. they are about transitioning they couldn't get together on words like phase down or phase out mm -hmm. my understanding is even with what they did i think saudi arabia was sat in the corner of the room going no 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 and when you think about it, the biggest single cause and issue with climate change is fossil fuel. So it's taken us 28 years to actually put in the sort of the communique, the headline text that we should be doing something about fossil fuels. So that's bad news because it's taken so long. It's good news because the words are out there. But don't get too excited because the, the language that is used about a COP communique is it is non-binding. Because if yes. you think about this, all your countries are there, your prime ministers are there, your other people are there, and they all go, yes, we will sign up to this. But right. they then have to go back to their own government, their own jurisdictions, and then put this through. And what we're asking if we're having annual COPs, we're asking people to come back from a COP, get this through. And if you think about it as well, 2024 is going to be one of the biggest years globally for elections. Two, million, two billion people are going to be uh, voting. America is a big player. We're, we're a small player, but we're, we could have a change of government and India and a number of others. And you do wonder... I'd like to think that climate change becomes a significant issue in, in an election. But on the other hand, trying to please the, the local voters and things like that, it might not be. So how much will have got ratified at, at a country level or a provincial level, whatever, by the time we have the next COP, I think is going to be interesting. It's really a show at the end of the day. It's like they, they're on yeah. the cameras, they're all smiling, hugging, shaking hands, and we get these great headlines and then it's like next year oh revised targets this is actually the new target that we're going for and it's much less than what they originally promised yeah a another comment if you've seen the photographs there is an element of racial diversity but there isn't much gender diversity in, in, I in did all notice those people that. who are in the photograph you know yeah so i noticed especially the big photo i was kind of you yeah. know usually Usually with these sort of events, especially lately, there's usually a good mix nowadays. But I yeah. think I was like very surprised. And again, given the circumstances, maybe things were different this year, but it was definitely very interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I'd like, what I'd like to do is I'd like to share with you, you we'll always try to find out some, some interesting things or some figures. And I thought to myself, let's have a look at various figures that have cropped up during okay. this. So wait for this you know you need to take notes <laughs> no i'll take notes the, the number of attendees this year at cop was 97000 
think on that, 97,000. COP27 only had 46,000. So this COP28 is by far the largest meeting of people under, under the COP headline there's ever been. Okay, so now let's take out another part of that. Of those 97,000 people, 2,456 of them were fossil fuel lobbyists. And they, as a group, outnumbered nearly every individual country delegation. So that becomes interesting. Another side issue on this, and we, we, can, we can get it. Do you know, you can get a delegate list for COP. You can actually download the delegate list of the 96,000 or 97,000 people. So you can have a look at your country and see who was represented, who went there. So that's quite interesting. That is. Now, the international travel for COP27 accounted for over 44,000 tonnes of CO2. Mm-hmm. And they estimate for the COP that we've just had that 70 to 80% of the emissions will be from travel. Now, given we've got double the number of people, we're probably going to have double the number of emissions. Although the 28 presidency have talked about it being climate neutral, offsetting and everything else. OK, so that that's the people that were there and a bit of the impact. Now, the headline was the thing about, you know, transitioning away fr from fossil fuels. But there was also a declaration on sustainable agriculture, resilient food systems and climate change. 130 countries signed that. 30 countries signed up to the freshwater challenge to set targets for to preserve freshwater ecosystems. I'm pleased to say for both of us, Canada and UK were in the 30. That's good. And now this is a bit of language I do like, and I think it's interesting, of 118 governments have committed to tripling renewables and doubling the growth of energy efficiency and including targets for those in their national determined contributions. Now, that I think is a really good thing because that's a pretty clear statement of what you're going to do and a place to report on it. 68 okay. countries... Go on. No, I oh, think no. the highlight for making it energy efficient also, again, it goes back to the, the kilowatt hour we don't use, right? Yes. So the energy efficiency did surprise me. I think a lot of times with these conferences, maybe we do focus a lot on maybe technologies and what we're using rather than the other side of it, which is, yeah. okay, let's just try to use less energy. I think that it is so true. And I think one of the things that comes out of this as well with this COP, there's got to be a global stock take that's being undertaken in terms of, of emissions. And so we are beginning to ramp up. Being honest, there's some good things there, but they are possibly 10 years later than they should have been. OK, what else right. have we got? We've got the global cooling pledge to remuse, reduce emissions from cooling by 68%. 60 countries signed up for that. 39 countries have endorsed the UAE Hydrogen Declaration of Intent, which is a cert certification standard for hydrogen. Now, another little interesting one. Six major carbon credit programs, which represent 90% of the carbon credits, have committed to collaborate on standards. So that is positive. 
But now let's go for some other figures. If we're going to get the limit of 1.5 degrees C, GHG emissions by 2030 have got to fall 43% below the 1990 level. And here's where one of the big issues comes out of COP because the things have been late. There is a big issue on scaling. How can we scale up the levels we need to? So what sort of scaling up are we needed talking about? We're talking annual deployment needs to exceed for wind, 25%, uh, 19% for batteries, 55% for green hydrogen, and 41% for carbon capture. These are, are massive steps forward that have got to be maintained year on year. And it's suggesting that in 2030, the demand for green technologies could generate $12 trillion in yearly revenues. So there's money to be made somewhere in this. Also, whilst we're on the money, it would be wrong not to mention that there's the, the development of the sort of loss fund, you know, the loss and damage fund, which is a sort of form of compensation to the underdeveloped countries who are and some of whom are suffering most from climate change. So, yes. So, so there, there we go on that. So that, that is, that is quite a, a chunk of people. Oh, whilst we're kicking the numbers around with out of the 97,000, just out of interest, nearly 4,000 of those were from the media. Wow. So we should have got a lot of good reporting on that. The United Nations. I will say Secretary, I did see a lot of reporting. Yeah, <laughs> I saw yeah, a lot of United, reporting for sure. Yeah, there there will be. Did you notice? And I think a lot of people will notice the reporting depended on what the what the organisation was that were reporting it. So what they choose to report. Just as a bit of background as well, the United Nations Secretariat they were about 1500 people out out of the whole lot so you know so lots and lots of people there and as we know trying to get decisions now this is a, a thing i think we we've we've said before and we ought to say again when you've got 195 parties all trying to agree on something are they going to agree on the highest or the lowest you're going to end up, it's a sort of form of almost like a Dutch auction. You're going to start off by saying, should we do this up here? And you'll get 10, 20 countries will go, yeah, we'll do that. We'll do that. And then they go, no, we've got to get more on board. So you start bringing it down, down, down. Or you start at a really ridiculous level and everybody signs up and then you start ramping it up. till you start getting a drop off and then you go, right, we've got it. You know, we've got. 90, 95% of the parties are agreeing. That, that's where we go. And that is a big, a big dilemma and a big problem. Yeah, I think if you think about it, I can understand from the party's perspective, you don't want to over-promise and under-deliver, but no. it does seem that's what they do every year as our targets get more refined as the years go by. So I do think there is some merit to signing up for something that you actually think you can commit to. However, yes. again, they're all taking this back to their countries and actually discussing this and seeing if these targets are actually reasonable for them. And again, well, it's, it's the emphasis on everything not being binding, too. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you and I have a, have a discussion and, and say we're going to have some non-binding agreements. We could agree to, on right. all sorts of things, couldn't we? 
But I thought yeah. just go, I'll just go back, and this is from the United Nations. The United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP28, closed with an agreement that signals the beginning of the end, in quotation marks, of the fossil fuel era by laying the ground for a swift, just and equitable transition underpinned by deep emission cuts and scaled up finance. And it's saying nearly every country in the world has agreed to transition away from fossil fuels. So that's the wording, transition away from. The main driver of climate change, and it's, this is the point, it's the first time that such an agreement has been reached in international climate negotiations. And it also included in, the, in the, the commitment is the first global stock take, and that is of how countries can accelerate action to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement, which, of course, is a, is a previous one. So that's what it is. And I mean, the final text more strongly called on nations to take a variety of actions to reduce emissions. It also stated the intention of accelerating and substantially reducing non-CO2 emissions globally, in particular methane emissions by yes. 2030. Well, of course, if we phase out natural gas, we will phase out a big chunk of our methane emissions because a lot of them are leakages from natural gas systems. Did you so, find the emphasis on methane? I found it very prominent. I don't know if it was just what I saw. And I find it a little interesting that methane's the focus when we're now in an oil and gas heavy industry. Okay, let, let's be clear. Methane, for one thing, the US have been quite keen on methane reduction. And there's been a number mm -hmm. of programs there. Yeah, quite a lot of methane actually comes from landfill waste sites and, and other forms of generation of it. It's not all just leakage. It's a slightly more potent gas in some ways, but it doesn't last as long, which is a good news thing. But it, it's here's where we get the problem, isn't it? Because we're saying, yeah, we should do something about energy, which actually remains reducing carbon-based CO2-type emissions. But we've yes. got to bear in mind that there are many other non-carbon emissions that are in infinitely more powerful in global warming terms. The good news is there's relatively small amounts of them being emitted. But I think to be comprehensive, we've got to hit the whole lot. Yes, agreed. I think for me, it was more, you know, the main emissions that we typically talk about, especially when we think of oil and gas. It, I don't know if it just wasn't reported on as much, but I just found it interesting yeah. being that, you know, this COP was hosted in the UAE. Why wasn't it yeah. discussed? And was it dis not discussed on purpose? Well, I, I think as well is that, and I'll, I'll go for it, sometimes, oh, let's have a look at methane. It's a bit of a distraction away for it's some something else exactly. to do. I think you shared with me on, on LinkedIn before this short interview with George Monbiot, who is a quite a radical campaigner on climate change in, in this country. And I, I did like a couple of things he said. One of the serious ones was, was that it's all very well building wind farms and solar farms. But for each one of those, you should be retiring fossil fuels. You know, you should be making sure. But what was that thing he said? You know, where we are at the moment 
it's like we're supposed to be on a diet. We're e eating lots of big cream cakes and burgers and everything else. But we're saying it's okay because I'm eating salads as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a bit of an extreme view of it. He is quite outspoken, but you come down to the bottom of it. I think he's, I've followed him for some time and I think he's one of a number of campaigners and reporters in the field who the frustration in the lack of movement mm -hmm. is getting to them. And, you know, what do you do? It's why we we get these things like uh, Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil and these extreme movements. And I, I think they have come about because people aren't seeing governments move the dial. But we know, we know that many businesses are. Now, this is the thing that did strike me. You know, we've been talking in our podcasts and that about, oh, energy transition, you know, you know, yes. how are we going to do it? Lots of people are already engaged in an energy transition and arguably saying, oh, we're going to transition away. It's really coming up behind where the leaders are, you know, and people are moving forward on the energy transition. There are there are interesting things happen. The petrostates, I don't know if you picked this up, and this did come out during COP28, they're buying lots of potential nature-based carbon offsets. Because, and, and there's part of me thinks to myself, oh, isn't this good? You know, I can be there as a petrostate right. and I can go, here, have this oil. And by the way, I can sell you an offset. And that's brilliant because yes. I sell you oil and I sell you an offset. It's very Am smart I being too business clinical? decisions. <laughs> It's very smart on their end. Yeah. And and to be fair, we talk of transition. If you have an economy that is totally based on fossil fuel and you are living a very, very high lifestyle, as many of the people in the, in the Petra states are, how are you going to s secure the future economy of your country? You've got to, right. you've got, you have got to do a transition. You can't do a cliff edge transition. We know that for many reasons you can't do a cliff edge. So it's got to be a sloping transition. So now the big argument's going to be about how speedy is that slope. Yeah, I'm I'm also curious, you know, that we go back to the 1.5 degrees Celsius warming target that we're yes. hoping to achieve by 2030. Yeah. I believe they during this COP28 time they they discussed that we are well below reaching that target. And being that we're about six years away, I am curious on how we're going to get there. Aren't we all? I've said this on, on previous podcasts. I, I believe our current government in the UK is, should we say, lessening its intent. It, it's doing it in, a, in quite a clever political way. It's saying, mm -hmm. no, we're not shifting the 2050 target. No, we're still going for that. But we, we think that there are better ways of getting there. And a, a lot of that is, we know, don't we, that we're going to hurt somewhere if we're going to get down to net zero. It is going to cost. Mm. Yep. But we keep, we've talked about this before. How much is, what's it going to cost us in the longer term if we don't get there? Mm. And this is the whole, there's a whole economic model theory about what's more important to you, $10 today, or $20 in the future. 
Right. And most people go for the $10 today because they think, oh, I can get my hands on it. I know where it is. Whereas if you've, you choose the time scale, right, the $20 in the future is worth much more than it would be if you got it today. But people don't want to defer it. And so we are, as a society, much more of instant gratification. But I think equally, where we are, and I think a model that we've got to break, is that there are a lot of people who are committed to the concept of net zero, but they don't want it to hurt. Now, we, we've said in our podcast, and we believe it and we think it's true, Net zero is a business opportunity. It, it is an opportunity for, for improving a lot of things. And probably it's better for you if you get into it now ra rather than later. But it is also equally possible. I, I don't know if you've picked up that there, there are a lot, number of jurisdictions where the reporting has gone, you know, is, is becoming negative about, against heat pumps because heat pumps are seen as a, a very good solution for heating. I think it was Gary in, in our podcast with him was saying the world has to be electric. We have to do everything through electricity. Right. Now, here's the thing. If governments really mean what they mean and they want everybody domestically to have a heat pump in countries like the UK where we've got a lot of heating, you know, heating demand. What do they do? Do they get us to pay for it? Because we're going to, I mean, I at the moment, I've got a relatively modern gas-fired condensing boiler. Quite efficient. I work it well. It's got, it's got a probably another 10 years life in it. Why would I rush out and spend 20, 30, 40,000 pounds on changing my heating system because the problem is heat pumps we have radiators for domestic heating typically heat pumps work brilliantly with underfloor heating and different floor different types of system so we've got all of that if a government really wanted to could they not provide more uh, support because we've seen it in solar panels Government support solar panels. The cost of solar panels comes down. They can then withdraw the support. But I think the, the mechanism that is being done on things like that is one of, I think, because of the general economy as well in most, most parts of the developed world, we're not exactly sitting on barrel loads of cash that we can splash around within our economies to do it. So it's complicated, but that, that's got off the track yeah. of really of, of cop. Lots of loopholes is the other comment that people have said. But then as mm -hmm. you, you've, you've picked up and I've picked up, when you've got non-binding agreements that you've then got to go back and negotiate, well, arguably there's one massive great leap, loophole and that is there is no mandatory reason why you should do anything. So, yeah. I did see a lot of emphasis too on people looking forward to COP29 and when the countries submit their updated NDCs and NDCs mm. are nationally determined contributions. That's typically what we use to see if we're actually meeting the targets that we're promising. So I know that there's a lot of emphasis there, but I'm not too in loop, I guess, with any NDCs this year except for the fact that people are saying we're way behind. Yeah, and then, then we've got an interesting one, haven't we? We could do a whole session on... I mean, I wonder how accurate they are. In theory, they ought I to am, be quite... I am too. I am. You know, because you, you, we, we know at an individual energy user level, for example, 
quality of data can be highly questionable. But I guess mm -hmm. when you're doing an NDC, you're going back to the major oil companies, generators, other people like that. You're going back to the supply side measurement of it. At least I hope we are. Something yeah. we ought to look at. Something we ought to look at at some point. But we also know, and I, I, I mean, I know this particularly from doing assurance work, you could get a variation in an NDC of what, 5, 10, shall we say, purposefully manipulating the data, but being careful about how you put it together. What conversion factors do you use? How do you measure something? And then this is interesting because then we get buried in the minutiae of how we're measuring it. And we're forgetting all the time we're arguing about measuring it. We're not doing things. And I have a theory or a practice that I've used in consultancy work, which is, is it important to, when you can't measure something, but you know there's something really obvious you should be doing, shouldn't you be doing the really obvious thing? Admittedly, you won't then be able to go, oh, that's how effective it was. But if you know that it's going to be effective, why not get on with it and worry about refined data later? It's a bit of a not our normal approach to things, but it's if we wait, try this. If we wait for all our governments to come up with hard agreed targets that are going to be over the next five to 10 years, and we also wait for there being the highest audit quality data available to show what's going on, you're at 2030. Well, you know, you know, as we're talking, I'm kind of searching it up because I am curious, you know, when are they required to report and what are they doing? It seems like all countries that were involved in the Paris Agreement, except for the small island developing states, are required to submit their first reporting by December 31st, 2024, and every two years yeah. after that. So yeah. I think we'll have some exciting things to talk about next year. Oh, I, 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 I think I think we will. I've been doing this longer than you have, as we, as we both know. And I cannot get over how, if you look back on it, we had warnings on the impact of climate change, certainly in the 70s. There are, there are suggestions that there were even papers written in the early days of the Industrial Revolution saying that all the, the smoke and coal dust and other things could have, you know, a detrimental effect on the environment. So the idea that energy use can be environmentally detrimental is not new. And yet, I, I is it because it's such a big problem that if you keep putting it off, maybe it will sort itself out? I don't think so. It was interesting. I had some friends over uh, over at the weekend and they, they, they've got a daughter, Kaylee, who's just turned 18. And I'd lent her a book about politics in this country and how the future of politics getting right was dependent on young people. And I realised I was at one point I was giving her a really hard time because I was saying, you know, it, it looks as if my generation and, and the ones are, you know, some of us, we haven't really done the best job in getting things done in terms of politics, in terms of the world, in terms of the climate. And this is where, where little Greta Thunberg comes from with, with all of her outrage. You can understand it at one level. She tends to forget that some people have been trying, but overall we haven't moved the dial. 
And it's massively incumbent on young people to do something. But then I was just thinking, I'm saying that, and then I'm thinking, yeah, 2030, you know, six years away-ish. Okay, yes. So Kalia, 18, she will be going into the workplace. She will be able to do something. She will be able to make an impact. And I think think that's what's got to happen. Agreed, for sure. And I I mean, we've talked about that quite a bit of what, employees expect of their employers, especially in relation to climate change. I do think there will be more demands. Like I even think of basic level things that, you know, we assume all companies are doing by now, but some are not things like recycling. Like if you really just go back to the basics, right? How can we do little things day to day? Are we certain that, you know, are you certain the company you work for is recycling everything or are they dumping it in a landfill how do you know like asking those fundamental questions of things that you are able to control things that you see in your day-to-day i think that's really important as well you're right there because although we by nature of who we are and what what we are we 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 try to focus on energy an Mm -hmm. alternate slightly alternative approach on sustainability is to think about resources that you use because every resource that you use has some kind of impact. It may be a raw material, it may be energy and whatever. And, you know, I am a great fan of of the circular economy concepts that are are growing. And I think we've got to do far more about that. And that's become one of the interesting arguments with all the batteries we're going to need been pointing out people go oh how can we keep mining all those minerals but in fact we will reach a point where there can be a circular economy on batteries and the the amount of virgin material we're having to put in is considerably less so so that that will change and you know yeah i i love energy it's what it's what i do it's what what i've been about but every now and then i find it really valuable to draw away from it and look at the bigger issue, you know? Right. And I, I do think that, everything at the end of the day does use energy too. Like even the mining of the materials that you're mentioning, that's very energy yeah. intensive. All the materials we use, the way we recycle a product or it goes to a landfill for that item to no longer exist or to be a different product, they're using energy to convert it. Right. So even if yeah. it not, it doesn't directly touch energy and it's not the typical energy conversation. Like we're not talking electricity. We're not talking, you know, we're not talking gas, anything like that. It's probably still using some form of that. I've just remembered when I was talking about the figures, there was a a bit I didn't share. Mm -hmm. And I think this comes down to judging countries commitment, but we had an incident with COP28 with our net zero and energy security minister who was in Dubai. There was a critical vote in the House of Commons in the UK. So he jumped on an aeroplane, flew flew back to London, voted, got on an aeroplane. I believe it was a six and a half thousand mile round trip. And you have to say, what does that say about our government's commitment to the concepts of climate change being addressed to being in the room, you know, for, for, for the, you know, the argument will be, oh, there were plenty of other people there, but you know, yeah, yes. 
and I, and I th- I think that is it 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 is a big thing that at one level to to go to represent your country at COP and to sign up to what appears to be a well what on a, a good statement and you can come but come back and go didn't I do good but then as as we've said you know the beginning of the end you know and an agreement that signals and things like that it's but then i suppose i've got to be a realist there is no way you could have actually had a binding agreement at cop right like you said 97000 people <laughs> yeah it's, well and it's and, such a big and group. you know 195 countries you would have to have one person from each country who was empowered to make a commitment on behalf of that country. And classic situation on that. Now, here's how you could do it. <laughs> Wait for this. You you have COP slightly longer, all right? You have the first session. You come up with the agreement. All your prime ministers and presidents all fly home, immediately have a session of their of their parliament government or whatever vote on it and then they can send them back and then they go yes we've now got the mandate from our government we can actually make this binding what do you think the chances of that happening are you know i'm still hopeful john i'm still hopeful (laughs) maybe in 10 years that's how it's going to go well it's what it needs yeah on that note i do think for me the biggest positive and maybe you can share what you found the biggest positive of cop 28 was because sometimes i do feel like we tend to get in the focus on the negatives on cop 28. i personally like you mentioned john and you always say this climate change is happening now Uh, we're a little late so i do really like the announcement of the loss and damage fund and i do the current contributions i believe that it's a pledged of 700 million i believe there's estimated I believe it was 30 billion or something like that already of climate damages. So we have a long ways to go with this fund, but the fact that it was created and there's already some pledges there, I do think that's hopeful, especially as countries are struggling today with climate change. Yeah. And if I'm going to be positive, I think the fact that now, okay, the word transition has been used, but the fact that there there is a, a declaration that we need to move away from fossil fuels Mm-hmm. I think it would have been a disaster had that not come out. You know, if there hadn't have been anything said about that, I think everybody who said, oh, it was in the wrong place, you shouldn't, you know, I think that that is, we've got to take a positive from that. And I do like the the concept of people signing up to tripling renewables and doubling energy efficiency. I think that's all nice, good language that gives us things actions that people can go away and do and I, i'd almost think it, there's a there's an idea for saying how far can you extend that some of the corporations we know could they sit down there and go right we're going to transition away from fossil fuels we're going to treble our renewables and we're going to double our energy efficiency you could set those even as a corporate target let alone a, a country so I think I, I, I think there's, you know, it didn't fall apart. There is something good in what's there that, you know, it, it becomes like a lot of these things. Watch this space. You know, how 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 mm-hmm. do they follow through with their, you know, what they've said? 
you know we we have various expressions but you know there's a there's an old english country one is fine words butter no parsnips i'm never quite sure what it means but what it's saying is is that i think what it's saying is if you've got your parsnips you know you're eating them and you want some butter on them saying something nice just won't won't make it happen in the end you've got to have action i think what came out of 27 was the fact that business has a massive role to play in delivering the transition net zero completely agree and we know that but what we do know is is many of the leaders in business are doing it so yeah there is there's still hope i also think i know we've harped a little bit on the non-binding agreement but if we think about the paris agreement the paris agreement is a legally binding agreement between the parties I'm sure that conversation started as a non-binding agreement, as they all do. So I do think it's important that we are having these conversations. I just think we're always hopeful and we wish it could be binding sooner rather than later. But I do think there is a positive in the sense that these will eventually become binding at some capacity. And that's hopeful. Yeah, I think my, my my other hope is is that cops aren't going on a geometric progression and that we have 200,000 people attending COP29. Yeah, we'll see next year. So what happens next based on COP28 activity? What do you think, John? I think we've got to closely watch our individual governments and see what they're doing. And then I think all those those various accords, agreements and everything else that were mentioned, I think we should be tracking those. Of those, I think some that will be very interesting to track will be the the collaboration over standards for carbon credits because they have been discredited massively. And I think we know from people we've had on the podcast that we probably have got to use offsets. We have got to use carbon capture. We've got to do those things. So they've got to be regulated. They've, They've got to be they've got to inspire trust. And I think that that is really important. But yeah, and I think as well, I think a positive because this does happen the way that it does. And when we look at, you you know, the we had over 14,000 people from non-governmental organisations at Mm -hmm. COP. There are going to be a number of people out there who are going to try and hold all the the active participants, put their feet to the fire, as they say a bit, you know, are going to follow up on them. And I don't think we will have a problem with finding out how people do. Now, we've said we want to be positive. There's just one area, and I don't know if you picked up anything on it, but it was my understanding that because of the location of COP28, the amount of activism and off, uh, off-campus protests and things was, mm-hmm. should we say, limited. Yeah, they, I heard they were restricted to areas. They weren't able to mention specific people, companies. Yeah. There, there are quite a bit of rules with the pro- protesting. Yeah. I think the, the other thing I'll throw in, being ever... I'm, I'm not being contentious. I'm saying something I've heard. A number of observers have felt that COP28 was very much a branding opportunity for Dubai. Mm-hmm. And we've got this far in it, and there was one big negative that we haven't mentioned. And that was the president of COP28 suggesting that there wasn't science to support a transition away from fossil fuels. But despite that, 
And I suppose this is, again, the positivity. Despite he, as the chairman, saying that, we still got some language in that final communique that said we should be transitioning. Yeah, I saw quite a few articles on him saying that. And I wasn't sure if that came before COP because I believe then he had addressed those comments later Mm. on during COP. What I do think, I know a lot of people don't like that, you know, he was the president of COP. I actually think it's exactly what we need in a way. These are the people we are trying to convince and trying to get to transition. And if they're not involved and not represented, you know, the rest of the world has no idea what they're thinking. You know, that him saying that comment and people picking up on it, we need to realize that the people that are in the oil and gas industry, and I'm not saying everyone thinks like him or uh, agrees with him, but the people in power in his place, similar to him, are going to share similar sentiments and we need to understand what they're thinking so that we can better communicate to people like that to help them understand the energy transition. Yeah, You can't just talk to people who agree with you. And I think we were both on well, the same can, page on that. You can, but it, it's not going to it's not going to make things happen because, as we said, right. you've got to get a consensus. And I think, yes, I think we can have a you know say there was a positive thing that a communique to transition away from fossil fuels came out from a COP hosted in a petrostate. Yes, and of course, you you know the hosting is quite important because this is something that people miss. The hosting country doesn't just provide the venue, they provide the presidency for for the conference. And as we all know, having the presidency of a conference can have a a big influence on what goes on and how how it happens. Yeah, there were some problems there. I think some of the island nation states felt that they they ought to have been able to debate certain elements and things like that. But again, how much can you do? in the time that you've got with the people that you're there. Somebody's always, and I'm not saying it's right that those things go wrong, but something's always not going to go quite to plan. Of course. It's okay. They have COP29 next year to make it better. Well, that's what you've got to hope, isn't it? Well, to end off this great episode, what's the biggest takeaway for you, John? What's the biggest takeaway? Well, a COP can give you an awful lot to talk about and an awful lot of people there talked about it. But I think my biggest takeaway is, yeah, I'm going to feel slightly positive in as much that the outcome was probably better than I thought it might be. I think for me, the biggest takeaway is, again, I just see people talk more about climate change as the cops come around towards the end of the year. Again, it's all over media. But I will say, try to remain engaged with those conversations throughout the year. Try to see what's out there, what's happening month to month. And don't just make it a December conversation. Make it a year-round conversation. You've you've touched on something that's really valuable there. Yeah, I think that's right. And perhaps the comment we were making about observers now following their own country and going, check who in your country was there from your government. See if they are going to follow up on what they've said that they will agree there. would be nice to know, for example, when elements of this are brought forward in the various legislatures for discussion and and, and approval to become binding there. Yeah, agreed. I'm very curious and I'm glad you mentioned it because I'll definitely be searching who came from Canada after this. Yep, excellent. All right. Well, thanks for another great episode, John. Well, I think we rambled, or I rambled a bit, but I think it was all relevant and I think it shows what what a good conversation starter a cop can be. 
But a conversation oh, we, starters I think we need go to have for action. Hours. Yeah. Talk to you next week. Looking forward to it. That's all for today's episode of the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check us out on our website at 360energy.net and follow us on LinkedIn at 360 Energy Inc. Tune in to our podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, Anchor, or other listening platforms by searching the 360 on Energy and Carbon. You can watch the video recording and subscribe on YouTube at 360 Energy Inc. Email us your feedback at podcast at 360energy.net or comment on our LinkedIn posts.